Ready? Hit it! Hello everyone and welcome to Twice Nightly The Podcast with Maria Lovelady and Michael Allen Bailey, a podcast that aims to bring everything variety out of the wings and into the limelight. So what are we waiting for? Let's raise the curtain and start the show! Coming up on today's show, we talk about the science of comedy. We discuss the stage adaptation of a 70s classic starring one of Britain's best-loved comedians. And the mention of which comedy character blew Maria's mind. Welcome everybody to the show and welcome back. It feels like it's been a while. It has been a while because I think we had such a mad few weeks, didn't we? With so many events and so... definition of whirlwind it was such a whirlwind and we saw so much of each other and then I've not seen you at all so I can't wait to just go over all what we've been up to with everyone listening and we haven't even privately debriefed about it have we we haven't spoken at all like so it's all still completely bubbling up in our heads and like the adrenaline's still going I think from from Jubilee weekend so we were invited weren't we by the the lovely David Pogson who was so so helpful when we were doing the collaboration last series with the Royal Variety he invited us to Brinsworth House which is the Royal Variety's care home which is supported by the Royal Variety charity where we went as you guys will know if you listen to our lovely interview with Giles the chairman and with lovely Jean the resident of Brinsworth so we got invited to their Jubilee party and we were so touched and we were so moved well, I can speak for myself and say I don't think I was sure what to expect but it totally defied what I thought it was going to be and we had the best time we did it was just a gorgeous day beautiful weather we were all outside in the gardens in the grounds of Brinsworth House they had food they had drinks they had entertainment from a variety of people different entertainers from musical theatre from variety performances choirs actors it was just fantastic we had a special zoom in from Shane Ritchie didn't we which was unexpected but fabulous and then the Commonwealth baton arrived didn't it at Brinsworth and this is what it was all about was celebrating the Platinum Jubilee and the arrival of the Commonwealth baton and we held it We did. We didn't think we'd be allowed anywhere near it, but we did. We got asked. They said, Maria and Mike, you've got to come and hold this. So we held it. We got a picture and it had just arrived, hadn't it, from Buckingham Palace. So to give you a bit of background about this baton, if you don't know, it started off with the Queen. She's written a note, hasn't she, that she's put inside the baton. We we didn't. We weren't allowed to touch the note. And (laughs) it the first stop on its journey. So it's going all around the Commonwealth for Mm -hmm. this Platinum Jubilee celebration. And the first stop on its journey after Buckingham Palace was Brinsworth House, which is where we were and we got to hold it. So we were one of the first people. And I mean, what a way to celebrate the, the Jubilee. I know. And it was just full of everybody that we've ever talked about on the podcast. Anyone that we've ever talked about when we talk or think about variety theatre. Jimmy Tarbuck was there and he made a speech and he was fantastic. And it felt like a real honour to be there, didn't it? It really did. It did. And it was fun. It was just fun. It was really fun. Mm -hmm. And we just had a great day. Fabulous. We thought we'd be home by five and we didn't get in (laughs) until past midnight. So I just think that's a good uh, sign of a good time. (laughs) <laughs> and I ticked something off the bucket list. We met the lovely Anita Harris. The lovely Anita Harris. Absolutely gorgeous. 
Nurse Clark from Carry On Doctor. There she was in the flesh. If that isn't me living a dream, I don't know what is. And I love the fact that I think she kind of thought that you were joking as well. I think she kind of thought that you just wanted to talk to her. And the more you spoke to her, the more she realised that you were a mega fan. (laughs) As though I was going to say, my granddad is a big fan of the Carry On film. So it's like, no, no, it's me. So... We did that, didn't we? And it was absolutely fantastic. But the night before Brinsworth House, we did something that was equally as fun. And actually, we got in well past midnight on this night. And that was, we went to see Some Mothers Do Have Them. And we met the fabulous writer and director of the show, Guy Unsworth. And you will hear the interview in this episode. But beyond that, we were kind of like comedy soulmates or something weren't we this always happens and we always say it you'd be sick of us saying it we had the interview turn the mics off and then the conversation almost gets better doesn't it because I think once we'd clicked it just the conversation just took so many turns and we ended up chatting all night last orders it was one of those nights yeah we're just really happy to share it with you because he was just a fantastic conversation No, he was. He really, really was. So let me tell you a little bit about our special guest today then. So let's have a little bit more about Guy Unsworth. He is currently dominating the theatre scene and he's rapidly becoming one of the most sought after directors in the UK. Guy's worked as an associate and resident director of Monty Python's Spamalot. He's also worked as an assistant director at the RSC. His directing credits feature a variety of productions, including Being Mr. Wickham, Much Ado About Nothing, Of Mice and Men, Bring It On, and as the co-host of this podcast, the production which caught my eye, A Night with Bonnie Langford. Which we didn't talk about, did we? And when someone has a CV like that, you kind of don't know where to start. Yeah. And obviously, because we were promoting Some Mothers Do Have Them, you, you, you start there. But there's so many ways the conversation could go. For example, I saw um, the productions that he was assistant director on at the RSC, and they were absolutely fantastic. And ones that they're some of the best productions that I've ever seen. And I think you wouldn't connect that with Bring It On. No, absolutely. Or a night with Bonnie Langsford. But I just love that that that's his life and that he gets to do all of those things because I think sometimes we can pigeonhole people and say, well, they do that or they do that. And actually, he kind of does a bit of everything, doesn't he? I think what I got from this interview was that whatever he does, he tries to find the sincerity and the heart in it. So it's not just a whimsical teenage high school musical, bring it on, or just Bonnie Langsford trying to, you know, roll out a few songs. He finds the heart and everything. I was just going to say exactly that. You know, I mean, we know from meeting him, you really get the sense that he passionately wants whatever show he's working on to be the best that it can be and to mean something. I think that's absolutely spot on. And I think if any of you that are listening are real fans of comedy, similar to our conversation with Mark Bell in series one, the science of comedy, I love that he called it that, the science of comedy is so fascinating and it's not something that just happens organically. And he, I love the way that he dissects that and talks about what that is so that as an audience, then when we're watching it, we kind of don't think about it. We just see the gag. And I think those of you that love comedy, this is a great interview for you to sit down, have a cup of tea 
and listen to. So as Maria said, guys, current offering is a stage adaption of the very much loved Michael Crawford sitcom, Some Mothers Do Have Them, starring Joe Pasquale and Susie Blake. Guy has written and directed this show and the show is currently touring the UK. So keep your eyes out. It'll probably be coming to a venue near you soon. You can find out about it by visiting the website www.somemothersdoavem.com. Now, we were lucky enough that we went to see it at the gorgeous Richmond Theatre, and it was just great, wasn't it? There were so many things to love about it, but I think the thing I loved about it the most was that it was a real ensemble show, which I think if you're a fan of the sitcom or if you know anything about the sitcom, there are times when it is an ensemble piece, but mostly it's really just a two-hander, isn't it, with... Michael Crawford and Mm -hmm. Michelle Detrice and a solo showcase for Frank Spencer in the TV show. Whereas the stage adaption was a real ensemble piece. And I love ensemble pieces. I love working with an ensemble. So to see that come alive on stage and to see the chemistry that all the actors had, I mean, the cast were fantastic. And I think they just worked together so well and there was no weak links. Absolutely not. It was so tight. And I think to mention the set as well, because the set uh, was almost, yeah. was it six-hander? So the set was almost like yeah. the seventh member of the cast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that had been so well designed. You didn't know what was coming next. I don't want to talk about it too much because I'm sure our listeners will go to see it and you want to be surprised. No, you've got to go see it. it. It's that successful. This is its third time out. It's had five-star reviews from all sorts of publications. It was just a treat and it was so uplifting it was gorgeous summer night wasn't it and we went Mm -hmm. in a bit stressed from the day as you always are (laughs) we came out and it felt like all your stresses had gone away and you'd laughed them out and you'd had a great shared experience I think that's what's great about comedy isn't it comedy in the theatre is different to comedy at home when you're sort of laughing on your couch. When you're laughing with a few hundred people, it's all it's so cathartic, isn't it? It's such a shared experience that you you don't get, I mean, you can get in stand-up, I guess it's a similar thing. And that's what is so clever about putting Joe Pasquale in that role is that he knows how to get that out of the audience. And yeah, I would just just say, come on, we've it's been hard times, hasn't it? I was reading a post on a Laurel and Hardy blog that I follow recently and somebody had commented on it and I thought that is so true. They said, when I sit at home and watch these Laurel and Hardy films, I kind of sit and chuckle to myself. When I sit with an audience or a theatre full of people and watch them, I'm rolling around on the floor (laughs) because it is that infectious shared passion, isn't it, that everyone has that's brought everybody to this one place to sit and watch with one goal, which is to be entertained and to have a laugh. And there really is nothing better. And what I would say about this production as well, in case anyone's listening and thinks, oh, I've never seen the series, it's not for me. I don't think you needed to. And there was a lot of different generations in the audience the night we watched it as well. It really is something that you could take a few generations of the family to watch and you wouldn't all necessarily have had to have seen it. It does stand alone as a theatre show just to entertain if you have never seen anything about the show before. I mean, there was one audience member who we heard asking the usher, does the bar stay open the whole way through? So I don't think he was a regular visitor to the theatre and probably not a regular watcher of some others to have him, but he was laughing his head off the whole way through. So there you and go. He's, and he stayed right till the end. <laughs> he didn't go to the bar mid-show once. There you go. There you go. Well, Guy is better at talking about this than us, let's admit it. He is the brain behind this production. And as you'll hear, he knows every single tiny detail about it. So why don't we share this interview with you now? This is Guy Unsworth, 
the director and writer of Some Mothers Do Have Them. And Guy joins us now. Hello. Thank you very much <laughs> for speaking to us today. We're so excited to be in what a lovely atmosphere in the theatre. Thank you for inviting me. So we should tell everyone, we are sat in the bar, the Circle Bar is this? Yep, yep. At the Richmond Theatre and we are so excited because we are about to watch Some Mothers Do Have Them, which Guy has directed. Thank you very much, yes. So tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the show, Guy, and why Some Mothers Do Have Them. Uh, well, I I spent three years on Spamhot in the West End as resident director, and then became associate director. And I, I, you know, the three years was on and off, but it was it was a long old stint looking after a, a kind of comedy juggernaut, as it were. And I, within that, spent a lot of my time putting new actors into the cast, particularly new King Arthur's and Ladies of the Lake. And at one point, put in Joe Pasquale as King Arthur and put Sarah Earnshaw in as Lady of the Lake. I had a great time on the show anyway and it was like comedy school, you know, if there's ever a way to to learn about the science of comedy, that was the way to do it. Uh, You know, and I think a lot of people would say it's a very... um, (laughs) <laughs> it sounds like a boring job to watch the same show time after time after time, but it is an amazing way to see how audiences react and how to maintain laughter mm-hmm. uh, and maintain laughter in a way which feels real and organic and fresh and live. But part of that experience was working with Joe and I had such a great time working with him. It always felt like going to work was like going on holiday. Um, yeah, I and I think that. we were quite an unlikely pair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He met me and, and thought I was very serious, and I met him and thought he was very silly. Uh, <laughs> but that combination, I think, was a, was a bit of a match made in heaven, really. And I knew from then that we must find something else to do. It was then just a case of what role do you find for Joe Pasquale? <laughs> um, and, and it was actually it was one particular show in the summer of 2012, I think it was. It was boiling hot in the um, Playhouse Theatre we were standing next to a, a fan in the green room, which was barely. I thought blowing. you meant a real fan. No, no, no yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there were no fans. real fans. <laughs> I waited all afternoon yeah. for our autograph, bless them. Uh, and this electrical <laughs> fan was just—it was useless. Like it would just was—it was going around at full pelt, but blowing no air whatsoever. And I said, said Joe, this fan is completely ridiculous. And, and he goes to touch it, and the whole thing just dismantled itself. <laughs> Um, and, and, and we kind of laughed about it and I said oh, it, was, it was a bit like Frank Spencer and that was really the first time we'd ever had a conversation that was just the two of us being quite nostalgic and reminiscing about it and uh, I wasn't born when the original series was on but I'd seen reruns and, and as a yeah UK girl yeah, yeah. to the rescue as a teenager really and, and just loved it and loved Michael Crawford in it yeah. and just loved the idea of these crazy stunts and that was what put the seed in my brain and thought what if (laughs) what if some mothers could come to the stage and if it did joe could be perfect for it and that was that was the beginning of the idea really is it a comfort to know that you're doing something that is popular and successful and works or actually is it intimidating it's funny one because because i wrote the adaptation Mm. as well but it was the first time I had written anything, really. And when I kind of think... I think if I'd really thought about that, I'd never have done it. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I think it was an interesting thing when it opened and was received as well as it was received. A lot of people said to me, my God, that was a risk yeah. that you took. And, I, and it never really struck me that it was a risk. I think partly because 
I did always wholeheartedly believe in the idea. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean the idea of let's have a sort of commercial success with some mothers on stage. I mean, I really believed in the characters mm -hmm. and I believed in the heart of it. And I believed that Joe had something very special in that respect that, yes, we think of him as a, a silly comedian. And he is a silly comedian, but he's a brilliant mashup of clown, stand-up, and comic actor. An actor, because mm. I've always said to him, that's your secret weapon, is that... Mm. He can deliver a scene as if it's Hamlet and it really will tugs on the heartstrings and that's what I think is really special and that's why I feel like he is a perfect Frank in his own way, I think, yeah. So when you decided that you wanted to do this and you think about how are we going to put this on the stage, are you thinking this has to be replicated or are you trying to reinterpret it in your own way for today's audience? Uh, I think I knew straight away that I didn't want to replicate it in any kind of way of the original form so I didn't want to do you know just reruns of 25 minute episodes I wanted it to be something that would exist as a theatre piece like it has to be something which lives in a theatre and doesn't ever feel like it was intended for a different art form the one thing that really helped me with that was these shows in the 70s were written for a studio audience so they mm. were theatrical by nature <laughs> they were filmed in a way that had a slightly more theatrical size to them they're slightly wider mid shots than you would film a TV series now. So there was a sort of size to them which helped. A lot of those actors that did sitcoms were theatre actors and that made a big difference as well. But I suppose the, the key question was like how much of an impression do you do? Mm -hmm. And that was the one thing I was really conscious of. Like I think it's a dangerous territory, I think. I think I felt that a brilliant impression would be brilliant for five minutes and then you go, but you're now you're watching someone play somebody else play somebody else. Yeah. And actually, it was a strange... I got going and got writing stuff, but never really knew whether it was going to really land. And I was sitting in a Pizza Express with Joe. That was the first time he'd seen any of the script. And we'd never even discussed how he was going to do it. And he, and we, yeah, we were in a Pizza Express in Covent Garden. And I said, <laughs> do you want to read a bit? And he just read a bit of it very quietly to me. And I just laughed. And, and I thought, this is great, because... I'm not laughing at him do an impression of Michael Crawford. I'm laughing at him do do him. And there were elements that he did that were obviously inspired by Michael. And, and mm. I just said, just try cutting all of that out. Uh. And he did. And I said, that's it. There we are. We don't need to do that. And it's a totally... I mean, one of the one thing we would always say is, like, we have the utmost respect for both Michael and Michelle Dutrice because they did such a good job with it yeah. but because they did such a good job that any attempt to try and do that would just somehow be underwhelming I think it would feel like the second rate version of it mm. so you know I, I feel like the show is at its best when it's a a love letter and a tribute but not trying to be a replica it's a love letter and a rebirth <laughs> rather that's than nice. that's really, yeah. yeah I love that because you have to have that heart don't you it has to be grounded in reality I guess and an impression would feel like as you say for five minutes it's funny but something that I think as you've mentioned that Joe Pasquale does really well and he won over everyone's hearts in all the reality TV things mm. that he's done people know him for him I think he's he really brings a lot of heart and a lot of warmth to his work and it would be a shame to sort of lose those aspects of himself and what he naturally brings to a character. Yeah, totally, totally. And even just even thinking about just watching the episodes, if you watch a single, some mother's episode of 25 minutes or whatever, it basically is scenario, 
stunt scenario, bigger stunt. Mm. That's the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was very conscious that if I'm going to try and make something which is best part of two hours, it, you can't just do that because yeah, you just yeah. peak too soon. But if you're going to peak too soon, do you pad it out? You don't want to go through a process of padding something out for the sake yeah. of it. So that was the big thing that I just went, do you know what, this has to work as a play. And I would say as well, like the first draft bears no resemblance to what it ended up being. But I, I do look back on it and I actually came across the first draft recently and, and just thought, gosh, it's so different to what it ended mm. up being. But that's kind of amazing that somehow we managed to carry on with that journey and not lose hope. <laughs> it must be like a nice security blanket for you as well to know that, I mean, I'm sure there'll be plenty of people who come to see the show expecting it to be an exact replica of the TV show or, you know, an impression of Michael Crawford's version of Frank Spencer. But it must be so nice for you to know that it's in such good hands with the cast that you've got. It's not just being, like you say, just kind of churned out because you know that people will come and see it. You know, you've, totally. you know you've got a surefire hit that actually it's good because the people involved want it to be good. Yeah, totally. And I think there's something about when you're when you're sending something out for a tour that's six months long, they're going through 150 performances of it. You've got to create something which, if there's a problem, if you're performing to 50 people in Newcastle or you're performing to 900 people in, in wherever it is, you, you, the, the show has to maintain itself. Yeah. That's not to say that you shouldn't listen to your audiences. Of course you should listen to your audiences. But I wanted to create something that in whatever scenario to whoever was watching it we could deliver a play and a play that had reality and heart to it and would deliver on its own regardless of whether people were going to laugh their heads off or not yeah fortunately most of the time they do which is good and I mean one of the things that I love about it which I was never a conscious decision when writing it was the six people in it mm-hmm. eight characters not that's a bit of a spoiler but yeah, yeah, <laughs> six people in it. but in the second half all six are on for I would say 90% of the act and that's kind of amazing one of the reviews described it as an ensemble farce and I I love that I I never really kind of imagined that that's what it would be Mm. it's a a real mechanical intricate choreography of lots of things going on in the second half what's great is that they're so reliant on each other and it creates a very very happy family from very first time we were workshopping it to where it is now that it's to cast who love each other because they have to they have to (laughs) really work with each other so you mentioned that it's the first time that you're writing this Mm. and then you get it into the room and you have to direct it and you've never written anything before and all of a sudden you've got this legendary show these great actors and a lot of physical comedy. Hmm. But did you know when you were writing it how it was going to play out? That's a really good question because I think I did and I didn't really. I, I was very conscious that I'd spent a lot of my directing career thinking that the idea of a director-writer combined was always a bad idea. So so suddenly when I was a director and writer, I was like, oh dear. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and and in fact, yeah. even, even my agent said, you know, voluntarily about somebody else, she said, oh, I never really thought that directors and writers should be the same person. And I was like, uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> anyway. But so that was always, a, it was something I was very conscious of. And I think I was, you know, I was conscious of it for the right reasons, because sometimes in that situation, if you come across something that's not working, when do you work out, this is a, a something I need to sort out with the way that it's played, i.e. the director, or I need to change the line and that's the mm. writer. And that dilemma just gets mm. very blurred. Yeah. So when we did a week of workshops with it, a director I'd worked with called Chris Luscombe, who I had done spam a lot with mm. and learned so much of my knowledge of comedy from, Chris very kindly came in as a director 
for that week. We were very open with what the deal would be. He knew he was never going to go and direct it. He didn't want to direct it. Yeah. In fact, he said to me, why don't we just go in and do it together? There was no kind of clear boundary or anything like that. It was just having an extra pair of eyes and ears. And that was so helpful because I was able to say, this doesn't work and I can't work out why. And he was able to say, cut the line. Or, or he was able to say, I think we need to move that word here. Or yes, that, that actor just needs a note on that. And that was so helpful just to have a second opinion. We, had, we shared a very similar taste, so that was super mm. helpful. In the very final week of rehearsals for the actual show, he came in the last day of rehearsals. You know, and I said, look, you've got to be brutal because I, I've got no, <laughs> I've got no perspective on it. Yeah. And he brilliantly said, cut these four pages. And I, and I couldn't, in my head, work out how that was possible. I just said, but if you cut that, it affects that, it affects mm. that, it affects mm. that. And he said, yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I was up all night sort of working that out. But it was so helpful because once you're into a tech period, you can't make those changes. Even mm. once you're into previews you can't mm. start shifting things and I, so I went in the the next day we, I think we had to sort of a two hour rehearsal and I said hi everyone you know and they started looking at me going you know and poor Joe who's you know Joe's on 126 or 128 pages and it's a massive yeah, role yeah. and they they were amazing I, I was so petrified and I sort of said look I'm coming with terrible news and they just went okay great and I think they were they were brilliant because they went this is totally for the good of the show and we've got five or six days of hell trying to get our heads around this but it'll pay off massively in the long run definitely Um, what is it about having a relationship with someone like that that you can completely trust them so when he said to you four pages gone is that something that you find easy to trust in anyone? Is it credentials? Is it a viewpoint? Good question. I think it's a lot to do with taste. And I think Chris and I had spent so much time working together. We'd done Spamalot together. We'd done two shows at the RSC together. And I think we had generated a, a working relationship and a friendship mm. that was based on just we enjoyed the same stuff. We laughed at the same stuff. We take great enjoyment out of <laughs> what probably most people would find very boring, which is the sort of... <laughs> the ins and outs of just how a gag works yes. and trying to fix a gag that you know has something in it but mm-hmm. you can't quite work out how to land it you know we would spend hours doing that I was able to trust him and yeah I think there's something really useful in always listening to people's opinions but you also at some point have to know when do you really trust your own or, or mm. whose do you yeah. really trust mm. and and making sure that everybody's opinion is is in your interest as well most of the time I think it is but, yeah because yeah. they're all you're in it could, you could have been a complete dictator yeah, and it. just d- said that you wanted everything and but I guess that just doesn't wouldn't feed into the ensemble feel mm. that you were trying to create with the cast yeah yeah no absolutely I find it really interesting what you just said about perspective so what I'd like to know guys how easy or difficult do you find it to break down physical comedy and slapstick technically and mechanically but still gauge whether or not it's funny uh, because you said that people find that boring, but we are not we those like, people. We are, yeah, yeah. we are ready to know. Yeah, it's fascinating. Something that Joe does, which I very rarely come across is with anybody. He's a natural clown, but he's also a technician. Mm. And so he loves notes, 
Well, at least he tells me he loves those. Uh, no, he, you know, he, he loves sort of continuing to work on stuff and find details. So he's very good at listening to a director. So he, he likes having a director to help yeah. him. Yeah. That's great. And not that people don't like that. It's just a lot of people are not used to, like, particularly stand-up comedians are not used to mm-hmm. having a director or anything like that. That's a really helpful dynamic. But what then Joe does, which I've never really worked out how he does it, is he then is able to do the technical stuff without you realising he's processing it technically. Right. So there's a sort of organic, anarchic quality that comes out of that. A really good example is there's a lovely little sequence in the show involving an, an old ironing board which originally, you know, the sort of the old idea of trying to put a deck chair together and, <laughs> kind of, and I thought, what if we tried to do a similar thing with an old wooden ironing board and the idea of Frank trying to get this thing to stand up? So we spent so much time sort of working out what kind of really works there. And Joe took a lot of guidance from me. And then in the process of the first tour, we continued to try new stuff out. Mm. And I say we, I mean Joe did. And then I was able to sort of look at that and particularly look at some recordings. And then the second tour, I was able to sort of say, I think hold on to that, hold on to that and hold on to that. So we then kind of knew what was working. And then he went out and sort of finessed that again. But he also goes and does it and I never quite know what's coming next, even though I do know what's coming next. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's high praise coming from you. Yeah, The audience must be on the edge of the seat. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a joy. With something like this, because the set is a bit of a playground, it's it's joyful and it's brilliantly designed by Simon Higlett. One of my favourite things to do in rehearsals was just in a break, just sort of wander around and see what the opportunities are you know there were lots of things that came up as a result of just seeing how that set worked is this the third time that it's been out because you were stopped by covid yes so it feels a little bit like the second proper time but it mm. is the third time yeah. and and how has the show grown or is it the same pretty much as what you first put out i did quite a big redraft after the first tour which went into the second one which we were cut short on and then we made a handful of little changes getting into this one Um, Because you got great reviews from the first tour, Mm. so what was it that made you want to do the redraft? Just seeing what works and what doesn't work. We're very lucky that it's a delightful piece that just keeps delivering, and once it really gets going, it's laugh, 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 and and that's a joy, but what it does mean is that when you don't have a laugh, or when a laugh doesn't quite land, you you feel like you've failed, (laughs) even even when it's surrounded by other stuff. And so just only through running that stuff in and seeing it over a long period of time can you then go actually let's just get rid of that line a a really good example is there's a paragraph that that fortunately there's a laugh pretty much every phrase but because it was getting a laugh every phrase we were losing the beginnings of the next phrases Mm. because of the laugh before so I actually just put sort of two more words in to slow down getting into that next bit which also meant that the audience tended to be quiet in order to listen so it's, it's little things like that that allow us to finesse it really the original series and michael crawford were obviously famous for the stunts how did you rein that in to work for the stage yeah that was a that's a funny one because it felt like 
suddenly you couldn't do half of that stuff. Mm. So Joe Pasquale's not going down really not high street in the roller skates. Roller skating no, under, a, under a lorry. But actually, the first first draft we had a we had a big roller skate <laughs> sequence, and then I sort of was like, well, we'll stick it all in the house. And then he then at one point he lost his cat on the roof, and, and then he had to sort of like got stuck on the lamppost and all of this stuff, which was completely unstageable. But it was kind of great to be able to go that way. One of the things that was happening with the script was that it was definitely going down. Michael Frey and Ray Cooney fast. Mm. quality to it and one of the, the great things with the Cooney farces was that it's all in real time so you never stop and I thought A it's a really good way to make this inherently theatrical because it yeah. means you're not doing any cuts of like the episodic nature of it <laughs> it makes it really hard because it means that you then got basically one scene from start to finish mm. but what it does do is it sort of solidifies it in one place yeah. and suddenly it was like well actually what happens if we lose the roof and we lose the lamppost and we lose the outdoors and we just set it in the house mm. once I sort of decided that's the way we we're going to go you then have a question of like let's go back to the beginning which is like okay we want dangerous stunts what's the most dangerous stunt we can do in a house and that opens up all sorts of options with staircases <laughs> and walls collapsing and things blowing up in the kitchen and that side of it. So before you mentioned the science of comedy which you learned during Spamalot can you unpack that and tell us some of the gems that you learned? Because they are masters of comedy. Obviously, Monty yeah. Python is an inherently based in variety and the slapstick world. So what did you learn from that? Oh, gosh. It's hard, it's hard to say. It's trying to have an instinct for like the type of laugh that you're getting. I guess it's a little bit like these are the symptoms, now work out the diagnosis. And a really obvious one would be something like the right side of the audience is laughing more than the left side of the audience. And you, then you know that there's something visual that's going on, oh, which wow. may be something to do with the people on the left can see that other person in the background that happens to be moving their hand just at the time when you want to deliver yeah. that line. You know, there's something as simple as that. Or are actually in, in a tiny, the tiniest thing in, that happened in spam a lot which was, which was a bit crazy it was there was a moment where this nun would come on with the holy hand grenade which was a grenade with a religious cross coming out the top of it ridiculous ridiculous moment but um, they would come on very ceremoniously and just lift up this grenade and you would see this cross and it was just it was stupid but it was very funny I mean it was funny because of the nature of the way it was done but I kind of noticed that about three rows didn't laugh at all I was like, why is that? That's so weird. So you've got everybody upstairs laughing. You've got everyone at the front of the stalls laughing. So then it becomes not, not a right or left thing. It's a height thing. And so when I, and I sat in those rows and I realised that just because of the gold on the cross was the same as the colour of the backdrop at that particular height. So it was blending wow. into the backdrop. So, like, I mean, that's sort of particularly nerdy. But, but of course, you, it does open up things like, well, it's just about a visual gag. And, like, yeah. well, what does that really mean? So it suddenly means that just making sure that things are visible mm. is really important. But you also don't want to make something so visible that it screams, look, here's a, here's a gag coming. So yeah. it's those sorts of things that are useful. I, I became a bit of a cynic, and I <laughs> sometimes... I, I brought this out in a note session recently with some others which is that you know I sort of sometimes say if 20% of the audience are laughing 80% have chosen not to you know yeah. <laughs> and, that, yeah, yeah. and that's me that's me sort of getting around some laughs that I feel like that there are you can get bad laughs like bad laughs are yeah. where people are laughing and you think oh great they're laughing and you go no no they're laughing for the wrong reasons mm. and you need to sort that now or you know and certainly things that 
you know, you might be able to get a good cheap gag out of something, but if you've killed the situation, then you're going to ruin all your situation gags for the next five minutes or even potentially more than that. And the situation gags are always the ones that will give you much bigger laughs because mm. they're based on such a longer period of setup. And, Is it constantly yeah. evolving as well? I mean, could you watch the show tonight and see something that you think, oh, actually, that doesn't work or that doesn't work as well as it could? Or you, you're, st- you're always... 100%. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's, that's one of the, the things that I think is hard enough, is hard as a director when you're not... So I don't tour with the show, but mm-hmm. I see it every you know, three or four weeks. And it's hard because I have a, a, a very a very close knowledge of the show, but I don't have a close working knowledge of the show in the way that some of the actors do. Yeah. They're hearing it eight times a week, uh-huh. and they hear the, the way that those things fluctuate and, and there is there's always movement I guess my job is to sort of work out you, you'll often get something which just slightly changes t- like in tiny tiny increments over time and by the time that I come in three four weeks later it is quite significantly different that's where it's quite useful I think for me to have a look at it because I can go you know I can come in with slightly bigger notes that perhaps mm. aren't noticeable if you've been doing it for mm-hmm. every day for a a long time. Yeah, definitely. Have Michael Crawford or Michelle Dutry seen the show? No, Michael lives in New Zealand. Ah. Oh. Uh, and Michelle has not seen the show. I, don't, I actually do know Michelle really well. Mm. And she, I had a really lovely coffee about the show just before we got to work with it. I think she would come if Michael came. And I think right. that would be... I mean, it's difficult as well, though, because, of course, well, A, you know, there's no doubt that it's their, their baby anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, they would be unbelievably welcome. But, you know, I think it's quite difficult to sort of just pop just in. Just blend somewhere. in. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. Totally. I was just going to ask about, because you were saying that you don't tour with the show and that you, you can... That distance helps you go in with those bigger notes. Do you think when you were working on Spamalot and you were the resident director, so a lot of the original choices weren't yours, the gags and the writing, do you think that allowed you to dissect the gags better than being emotionally involved? You know, there was an amazing moment when I'd been looking after it a lot in town and we got to a point where I had such a detailed knowledge of it. Mm. Incredibly detailed knowledge and an incredibly detailed knowledge of the mechanics of the whole thing, how it worked backstage, uh, and I sort of knew it better than anybody. And then the gags were bang on the money, and it was really sort of almost regimentally funny. <laughs> and maybe that's the sort of giveaway phrase, really. But I remember when Chris came in, and he just said, "It's good, but it's a too fast, and b they're not really doing it." And what he sort of meant was like it's it's mechanically clean, mm. but they're not really living it. And yeah. that's a sort of an interesting thing. Of that's sort of where the science of comedy kind of goes out the window because if through time you lose the ability to just do it organically, mm. and that's you know that's the same thing with this of like just genuinely go out there and play those characters for real and play the situation for real. And actually, it doesn't really matter if you miss you know, three, four, five out of ten gags, mm. if we believe it, it will pay off yeah. in the end. And so, yeah, I think that that's, that's the slight danger, I think, is that <laughs> I'd been seeing a little bit too, too much, much of it. Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about how fantastic Joe is and the fact that he can bring that heart to the show because he's an actor. Are there any performers that you aspire to as, um, I'm phrasing this, all wrong we your favourite variety performers, guy? <laughs> <laughs> Who 
are you inspired by when you do these these shows as, as well? Because so much of them are based in slapstick and variety, mm. and that goes way back beyond even cinema itself. So, yeah. Who, yeah. who is it that you're inspired by? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, I, <laughs> the, the sort of UK gold canon, I guess. No, I mean, I, I suppose like from stand-up point of view, like Ken Dodd, was always a complete idol. I, this is the sort of one person I wish I'd had a chance to meet, really. Mm. And actually, Joe and Ken were good friends, and Ken really helped Joe, and you can kind of... I can totally see those two getting on really well. But I think Mr Bean was a big old um, inspiration for me, and I still... <laughs> fans of Mr Bean come out of the woodwork. <laughs> yes! <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, they're God, often totally. they're the most sort of like unlikely people. And it's all ages, because he's still ever popular. All ages, yeah. And he's universal because of the fact that there's not much speech. Like, yeah. It's all physical, so it can be enjoyed anywhere and everywhere. Absolutely, anywhere, yeah. It's a joy, and some of, the, some of that stuff is so brilliantly put together... And actually, also from a sort of writing point of view, then Richard Curtis, anyone, anything that Richard does is, a, mm. is, I think, fantastic. A big inspiration for me is Panto, pantomime, and that's been a, I've, just something I've done since since I was four, and really grew up on it. And I'm really passionate about it, and passionate about it being done properly, mm. passionate about it being appreciated for the mm. art form that it is, because it's not easy to do. You, and within that circuit, you come across amazing variety acts of today. I mean, actually, appropriately timed, Ben Nicholas, who I do panto with at Manchester Opera House, and he's just got into Britain's Got Talent final as of yesterday. Oh, Amazing. wow. Yeah. So he's, that's on, is that Saturday? So this his, week? Yeah. Yeah. his bill will go up for you next year then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to stick with Ben now. Who yeah. sticks out of all the pantos that you've worked and been associated with? Who really sticks out as being, my God, they were good? Well, I mean, Ben, I think, is mm. is a, an amazing all-round performer. And I, he captures that family-friendly variety act. He can sing, he can... You know, he can't dance. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think he can, he can dance. He just always uses the excuse that he can't dance. He can step uh, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, you know, he's just brilliant. He's brilliant at being able to do the sort of stand-up side, but also do the routine stuff. Mm-hmm. And we I had a great time with him and Craig Revel Horwood. Together. Oh, great. And again, like Craig's great because he can do it all, you know, mm. and people sort of don't really realise he's got an amazing singing voice. Yeah. So doing that sort of stuff, in fact, doing, doing a big routine with Craig and Ben and then Eric Potts was a joy. You know, I was really... just about to say that, so yeah. I didn't get a chance, so I know Eric. Right. And I, I was in a show with him and I was uh, meant to go and see that panto and I can't remember what happened. I think it was snow cancelled that show and right, I right. was so gutted because what a trio like what a power show that must have been I'm so gutted that I didn't see it because yeah. Eric Potts is Mr Panto isn't he and yeah. he is someone that I've worked with comedy wise that has the ability to bring the house down and then one second later you're crying with him yeah yeah, and, and I, I think I, it's based yeah. in reality, as you said, like Joe. It's totally based in reality, and I love that. I used to work with David Ashley, who was a fantastic panto dame. We did a production of Snow White, and David was having a bit of a wobble, and sort of just sort of said, "I mean, it just doesn't feel sort of quite right. I don't like. I feel like there's something sort of missing." Snow White's a tricky one, mm. tricky panto, because it, it sort of it, it doesn't quite work in the same way as all the others, you know. And I sort of said to David, "The tricky thing is, you you don't have any time with." Snow White on stage, and Snow White is your niece, or, or whatever the context of it was. You're you're certainly her guardian, yeah. and if you're her guardian, then anything that happens to her affects you emotionally, and therefore you you have a very 
high stakes reason to be here and yes you're out there making ridiculous jokes about your latest boyfriend or whatever but it comes from all this sort of insecurity and huge stakes life-size stakes of what could happen to the person that essentially is your daughter mm. you know you are her surrogate mother <laughs> David sort of started crying and I was like <laughs> I was like you know it's sort of funny that we do have these conversations and Whilst I don't think anybody in the audience necessarily needs to know that, but there's something really quite deep-rooted about that panto stuff, that if you get it right, you can have people literally laughing and crying all at the same time. Amazingly powerful stories, I think, particularly for four or five-year-olds to be witnessing. And and important, because that's a lot of people's first entry point into theatre, and they're people's role models. You know, I I always get on my high horse about Mm. it with the princesses. Like you say, like, Snow White is problematic because she's the lead and everyone turns up for her and then she's not on half the story yeah so she doesn't have that that voice i think it's really important it's amazing that you have those conversations because Mm. i think as an audience member you can tell the difference between a profound experience and a a less to hear the lessons in it and then just one that's a bit of fun and you've forgotten about it 20 minutes after you left yeah totally i mean i had this amazing experience with a another production of Snow White with a chap who was playing Man Man in the Mirror and he'd not done Panto before was a very experienced actor uh, a performer so he had all the skills but just hadn't had the experience to kind of know how those Panto conventions worked and there was a bit where Man in the Mirror in in that scenario was essentially playing the the sort of good the equivalent of the good fairy and at the beginning had to ask the kids will you help me help Snow White defeat the Wicked Queen or whatever. There was something about him asking them that just didn't feel like... I was like, why is that not really landing in the way that I would expect it to? And I and I guess, yes, of course, that's kind of based on the fact that I've done it a, a number of times before, but I was trying to get to the bottom of, like, what is that convention? Why is that the way it is? And I said to Chris, you can use it to ask it, but don't expect the answer. Or ask it like you don't know what the answer is going to be. Mm. And he... And he said, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. He said, but, so, but why? And I sort of said, well, if you think about it, you know, you've got a four-year-old or a five-year-old in the audience and they're given the opportunity to help, you're actually saying to them, you have the power to join this story. Influence you, the show, yeah. Influence the show, but also influence the story mm. and therefore influence this massive fairy tale, which is one of the greatest stories ever told, and therefore influence... The future and influ- and create change. And if you give a four or five year old that experience at that age, mm. particularly when they don't know there are eight shows this week or whatever, yeah. they think they're at the only version yeah. of Snow White that ever happens. It's kind of an amazing thing to give them. And if that's your first, hopefully, if that's your first experience of theatre, then they'll come back for more. I think what you're just confirming throughout this whole thing is what everyone tells us is that comedy is just hard and there is a real science to it and you have to know what you're doing because I think audiences think that comedy actors and panto performers that it's just all about coming out and it's it's a laugh but actually it's hard it is hard it is hard but it's also heart I think that's a big thing for me it's like it can be easy if you put the groundwork in I think yeah so what about theatres then guy all the theatres that you've been associated with as a director what is stands out as one of your favourite theatres auditoriums do you mean or Anything, anything, community venues, arenas. Like, if you had to spend the evening at a theatre that meant something to you, what theatre would you pick? Oh, I mean, I'm a massive fan of the Victorian playhouses. So, just being here is a joy because of the way that 
comedy works in these houses. It's mm-hmm. just an acoustic that you can't get, particularly in modern venues, which really frustrates me. But I also love the Theatre Royal in Glasgow. Uh, because just for the sort of same reason, it's yeah. and it's stunning, and that's a joy. And I also did some work in Barcelona last year at the Lucie Opera House, which is absolutely wow. jaw-droppingly beautiful. But I think any of those any theatres that have a kind of intimacy and a grandeur all at once, I think is that's when it's sort of really special. I think. And Definitely. these Frank Matcham theatres are so good at that, aren't they? Because like I, when I was like booking our seats, there's no bad seats in the house, yeah. is there? Yeah, yeah. No. Wherever no. you sit, you you feel like you're almost getting a hug off the stage. Totally. Yeah. There were, I think something with the Frank Matchams is there's a sort of community aspect to all of it. You because of the counterweighting system, just means that you're you're not trying to peer through pillars and things like that. Well, if we could wave a magic fairy godmother wand now and give you one. God-given talent that you were going to go out on the stage and perform tonight to entertain the crowd. What talent would you want to have, Guy? What variety talent? What variety talent? Oh, that's so difficult. <laughs> uh, I'd love to be able to do bad magic. Oh, like Tommy Cooper style. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just sort of very funny magic that goes wrong would be a joy. Amazing. <laughs> Lovely. Amazing. Well, we always finish off by doing a quick this or that, so are you up for that game? <laughs> okay, okay, go Okay, for it. so we'll go easy. Cinderella or Snow White? Cinderella. Frank Spencer or Frank Butcher? Frank Spencer. Would you rather have mulled wine by the fire or Pims on the lawn? <sighs> Pims on the lawn. All's well that ends well or Love's Labour's Lost? Love's Labour's Lost. Would you rather be sat in the audience or waiting in the wings? Sat in the audience. Have you ever performed? (laughs) I performed a lot when I was younger. Yeah. I can't, yeah, I mean, yes, I, the whole idea of it. Keep now. that shrouded in mystery, guys. It slightly petrifies me. <laughs> we'll leave those in the uh, the photo albums of the past. <laughs> well, we <laughs> cannot wait, we cannot wait to see the show. We're, you can feel the anticipation of that pre-show kind of buzz bubbling yeah. up already, can't yeah. you? And we can't wait to see it. So thank you so much for speaking no, to us today. You. And good luck with the rest of the run. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Guy. Well, we hope that you all enjoyed that. We loved chatting to Guy. And as we said before, that conversation then continued for about six hours. There was one moment, though, that I think <laughs> Maria enjoyed a little bit too much. Should we have right. a little re-listen? Should we have a little re-listen to the moment? That's got me and Mike in stitches for the past couple of weeks. <laughs> but I think Mr Bean was a big old um, inspiration for me. <laughs> It was oh, as though, no, honestly, it was it was as though he you'd said, who's your favourite variety performer? And he'd gone, Aristotle. Or someone like that. And you'd be like, <laughs> yeah, Mr Bean. Like it was the most far out idea you've ever heard. It was a big old um, inspiration for me. Like I was sat there stoned <laughs> or something at the Richard Theatre. Yeah, Bean. man. Mr Bean. Um, inspiration for me. Oh, I've got to say, though, you're totally right. It is a bit of one of those things, but I think we forget just how brilliant Mr. Bean is. Mr. Bean was. Um, exactly. I was just celebrating it. And I think if you could see my face at the time, it wouldn't be so funny. But it's just the fact that my voice is in the back and no one acknowledges it. That's No, no, nobody. Mr. Bean. Mr. Bean. You sound like something from Wayne's World. <laughs>
<laughs> well, there was another bit, right, that I've when I listened to the interview back just then that made me laugh. So <laughs> about 14 minutes in, when Guy was talking about the other director coming in yeah. and because he was a writer and a director and he was kind of a bit of a, you know, he was like the voice of God and, and, and all of this. I yeah. just go, you could have been a real dick, Tater. <laughs> <laughs> and this I is listen- just absolute cast iron evidence that we haven't got a clue what we're saying when we're talking in these interviews. <laughs> And, and I, I didn't obviously mean to say any swear words. I just like chose act, like to break up the word in an unfortunate place. And I was listening to it and I was thinking, oh, no, there's no way I said that there's to no him. There's no way I called a guest a dick. There's no way I did that. But then I didn't. I just said dick, tater. tater. So if so <laughs> maybe let's just have a listen to that now and see how that sounds. Because the role you're in, it could you could have been a complete dictator yeah, and just d- said that you wanted everything. And did you hear it? Oh my god! What are you god. doing? Just abusing guests? Dictator. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely wouldn't have called guy that. That could be that, that could be your drag king name, dictator. <laughs> you come on, dressed like a giant spud. <laughs> Dictator. Oh, that is so funny. Yeah. Well, have, we you, got have, a fa- have you got a favorite Mr. Bean? Oh episode? my god, I was you're gonna say if you've got a favorite dictator. <laughs> Peron. <laughs> well, he's got the best musical about him. <laughs> have I got a favorite Mr. Bean? Mr. Bean? Oh. I always love the one with the baby where he finds the baby in the fun fair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, of course, the Christmas one where he gets the turkey stuck on his head. I was going to say the Christmas one. The it's Christmas one. And is it, the, is it still the Christmas one where he proposes to his girlfriend, but with the, the, it's the, the picture hanging? The hook. picture hanging. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and his friends want to leave. His friends want to leave. And they pretend. Well, that's, <laughs> yeah, new, that's year, the new Year. And they, year pre- one, isn't it? Yeah. they pretend yeah. that it's already New Year. And then he goes out and, and they're doing another party. Do you know what I think looks really good? What? That man versus B. Have you seen? Oh, yeah, I want to see that, yeah. I'm dying to see it. I think it looks great. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to um, watch that and compare notes. Yeah, definitely. I just feel like anything Rowan Atkinson does is good. If he's got out of bed and done that, I feel like it's going to be good. Yeah, Because I feel like he doesn't get out of bed for anything. (laughs) He's not not that kind of guy, is he? (laughs) I feel like if he's going to get out of bed and do something, it's going to be It's worth it. Do you know what I used to absolutely love? Saturday afternoons when we were a little bit younger used to be the best because it used to be Mr. Bean, the animated series. Because I used to love the animated series as well. On a Saturday afternoon, you'd have Mr. Bean, the animated series. And then straight after that, Harry Hill's TV burp. Magic. Absolute Saturday afternoon magic. Absolutely. And then probably Saturday night takeaway. Do you know, I was on the bus yesterday and this guy sat behind me and just said, well, Harry Hill's an Adonis, isn't he? And I thought, <laughs> is that, are they talking about... Maybe Harry in some circles. <laughs> are they talking about our, I mean, our Harry Hill? Not that we know him, but I was like, um, but I think he was talking about Harry Hill. An Adonis, Harry Hill. Harry Hill, there you go. Maybe well, talking about Harry Hamlin. 
or just just some world famous boxer that we don't know called? Oh, that we wouldn't have a clue. Yeah, probably. That's the more likely one, isn't it? That it's some sportsman (laughs) that we haven't got a clue about. Absolutely. Well, we hope that you have enjoyed this episode. We loved meeting Guy. It was just fantastic. And we do urge you go out and see some mothers do have them because it's a treat. You will enjoy it as much as Maria enjoyed Mr. Bean. Mr. Bean. If you've enjoyed the show, please be sure to give us a five-star rating or leave us a review on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. We always love hearing from you guys, so please get in touch with us on any of our social media platforms. On Facebook, search Twice Nightly The Podcast. On Instagram, at Twice Nightly Theatre Podcast. On Twitter, at Twice Nightly Pod. And now we're even on TikTok. Way at Twice Nightly Podcast, or you can search for us Twice Nightly Podcast on YouTube to get all of our previous episodes and any current episodes we have coming up. And if that wasn't enough, you can also leave us a voice message on our fantastic SpeakPipe platform, www.speakpipe.com forward slash Twice Nightly The Podcast. This is an ideal way to leave us a message about any of the episodes that you've heard or any that we've got coming up. If you've got a question for us, our listeners, or for one of our guests, or just let us know if there's anything you would like us to feature on the show. Yeah, so if you go to see some others do have them and you really enjoyed the show and you want to leave a message for us, for Guy or anyone in the show, feel free to do that through our speak pipe and we'll feature that on this episode. All that's left for us to say is... See you next week! God, how does Philip Schofield do it, eh?